It is I, Captain Murphy, of whom Jacobin Magazine, the premier socialist publication of record, once said, Jesus fucking Christ, and the social democrat Twitter emperor IPM called a coward. But who is Captain Murphy? I am the high mage of eco-anarchism, devoted slave jester of Eris, Nintendo fan, pervert, very sad boy, and all-around weirdo, welcoming you to Leftendo, the voice of the gaming proletariat, and reminding you all that the reason the World Wildlife Fund blames consumption for the 60% drop in wildlife populations since the 1970s is because consumption is something you and I do, and capitalism is something their donors do. Facts. Facts. Every week on Leftendo, we perform a holy ritual in nihilist navel-gazing so as not to succumb to the in this Gaia death epoch. As ever, I'm coming to you from somewhere below the briny, acidic, plasticky deep where phosphorescent wonders never cease and men fear to tread. This week, episode 11, The Great Copyright War. In this episode, a wonderful interview with Bryn of the Beep Beep Lettuce podcast, Nintendo Destroyer of Lives, and Breath of the Skyrim. So, let's whirl and twirl right into the news, news from, from hell. hell! Horrible wildfires have ravaged California, causing 50,000 people to evacuate and killing no less than 60, with many dozens more unaccounted for. Of course, one could say this is no big surprise given that California always seems to be on fire, and to a certain extent, that is true. In fact, even the ecosystem from the chaparral of Southern California to the northern pine forests evolved to burn frequently. However, climate change has caused massive droughts in the West, the worst of which have been in California. And that extreme drying out and heating up has caused wildfires to grow in severity year after fucking year. Quoting from an illuminating National Geographic article on this phenomenon, Because of this effect of climate change, wildfires are increasing in size, both in California and across the western U.S., says Park Williams, a fire expert at Columbia University. Since the 1980s, he and a colleague reported in 2016, climate change contributed to an extra 10 million acres of burning in western forests, an area about the size of fucking Massachusetts and Connecticut. Combined. There is no end to the ways in which climate change threatens the lives of all of us, and yet so long as the rich and powerful can get around its effects, and this recent disaster most evident and dystopian in the fucking Kardashians hiring private firefighters to save their decadent mansion, seemingly nothing will ever be done, and the bodies will keep piling up as a holy sacrifice to greed. There were several actions against fascist rallies recently, and I'm mostly going to stay out of inter-left politics because I think it's mostly, mostly meaningless. But I will say it's very easy to sit on your ass at home or in a bureaucratic procedural meeting and criticize the tactics and aesthetics of people actually putting themselves in harm's way to speak out against fascists. Very easy and very, very stupid. Moving on to gaming, though, Microsofty has bought out Obsidian, no doubt in a move to shore up its exclusives lineup. So move over, New Vegas and the Stick of Truth. Like when they bought out Rare, I have no doubt that we'll be getting an exciting new Fallout Dance Dance Connect game in about six years before, like a giant hungry virus, Microsofty strips the dev of its yummy yummy assets and absorbs it into itself forever. Nom 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 nom. Speaking of Microsofty, they're reportedly once again considering releasing a diskless console. Not a dickless console. 
Now, discs suck. Thank Christ, the Switch is a cartridge-based system. They get scratched, and these days, AAA games often come with full game 50 to 70 gigabyte patches day one. To be fair, I have bought a lot of digital games on my Switch, but if you get rid of all the physical media, a console becomes entirely worthless after its generation. So honestly, Microsofty, good luck with that. Unlike Microsoft and Sony, Nintendo is a lot like Disney in that it is a corporation with a long storied history and distinct identity. While in my opinion, Disney's quality has fallen away over the years, Nintendo for the most part has maintained a solid track record of making high quality fun games that everyone can find childlike glee in playing, and owns arguably the greatest video game characters and franchises of all time. We won't mention some of its weird hardware decisions. So knowing my great love and respect for Nintendo, you can rest assured that when I say fuck Nintendo, I mean it. That was my first reaction when I learned that Nintendo won a $12 million settlement against the couple who owned LoveRoms.com. If you go to that site now, you will find an apology to Nintendo, which is kind of like rubbing shit in someone's face after you rob them of their life force. Now, to be fair, part of me also reacts to this by thinking it was bound to happen eventually. As much as I hate copyright law and used ROM sites occasionally back in the day, it did slash does seem like those kind of sites were overly blatant in their let's call it expropriation. This is no excuse though. Nintendo has ruined these people's lives over sharing games that are predominantly over 30 years old. One could make an argument in this hellish market-based world, on behalf of indie devs at least, that copyrights must play some kind of role in gaming. But even if one was going to get that pragmatic and unprincipled about it, is 10 years too short a time? What about fucking 20 years? Cause 30 years? My god, most of these games are literally unavailable anywhere else. And many of the original rights holders, like for example, Sunsoft, God rest their soul, or THQ, or even, God forbid, LJN, no longer exist. Now, obviously, this is entirely within Nintendo's rights, as draconian IP law currently exists, but it's not moral, and it threatens the preservation of gaming history, which I, as a fucking geek, actually care about. I love Nintendo. I love, 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 love the Switch to death. But you want to know my biggest criticism of it? It's not a lack of loot boxy triple A casinos. It's not the Joy-Con drift issue. It's not even the goddamn voice app. It's the lack of a motherfucking virtual console. Why the fuck two years on do we not have a goddamn virtual console? Because you see, consumers are far less likely to pirate something if they can buy it conveniently. Now I know that Reggie fils the supreme field marshal of American Nintendo lawfare, has stated that the online service is essentially the new virtual console. And I am happy to see new games like Metroid come out this month. But that's a drip drip spigot, and you don't actually own those games, you only rent them for a year, so as it currently exists, it is no substitute. Not at all. So even from a purely business perspective, the quote-unquote problem with ROM piracy is largely one of Nintendo's own making. Because I'd be happy to buy a copy of Super Metroid, or uh, God forbid, imagine uh, GameCube games on my Switch, but since I can't, ROMs might be an option, and now they're harder to find as more and more ROM sites close their doors for fear of a life-destroying lawsuit. 
As I said in a video I made about Nintendo getting EMU Paradise to shut its doors after 18 years in service online, Nintendo, Nintendo, I love you, but fuck you. Now, as a palate cleanse for this uh, Nintendo uh, podcast, let's shit on Sony a little, shall we? Recently, journalists were able to play a little on the soon-to-come-out PlayStation Mini and have near-universally reported it to be a steaming pile of mediocre. Not only is the games list lacking obvious console-defining titles like Medieval, Crash Bandicoot, and Tomb Raider, but those included seemingly run at random, inaccurate frame rates and using the non-DualShock original PS controller actually strips out important functionality in certain games, but especially in one critical scene in Metal Gear Solid. You know the one. Not only that, but the UI, which contains none of the options of the Nintendo mini consoles and only one save state per game, seems to be something tailor-made for a early 2000s shit Chinese station clone. That has led some YouTubers to consider if in fact this was not made by Sony in-house at all. Far be it from me to spread rumors. I hate that aspect of games media for the most part, especially when it comes to hype building. But from all I've seen, this one rumor seems quite likely. Of interest to me, at least, is the fact that this uses the open-source ARM port of PCSX Reloaded, itself an offshoot of the original PCSX emulator, which ceased development in 2003. This would be neither a good nor bad thing necessarily, though quite interesting given Sony's particular history of waging lawfare on emulators. Google the Bleemcast kids. If not for the fact that we know Sony has in-house emulators for PS1 games. We know that because you can play them on your PS4, or even going back, you could play them on a PSP. So, unlike Nintendo, which used their own in-house developed emulators which work flawlessly and offers lots of options and more than one save point all wrapped into a beautiful UI, Sony is seemingly just slapping something together, whatever they can find, and then they're like, there, give us 99 bucks. At least it has wild arms, I guess. Stop not buying it. Maybe those mediocre reviews had something to do with my next story because Sony has just announced that it will not have a presentation at E3 in 2019. That's doubtful, honestly, and I, of course, don't particularly care myself, but from a Nintendo gamer's perspective, my guess is they have finally learned from Nintendo Directs and wish to pursue their own promotional strategy. Good luck with that. The Detective Pikachu trailer dropped last week, revealing a magical world of furry pocket monsters. What's amazing is it was impressive, actually. Perhaps the most impressive video game-based film trailer I've ever seen. In it, a failed Pokemon trainer protagonist named Tim discovers a Pikachu has broken into his apartment and somehow he can talk. But only Tim can hear his Deadpool-esque voice. Apparently, they go on a journey in search of Tim's missing detective father, as this Pikachu is a private detective. Though he's not a cop. Calm down, people. Jesus Christ. Of note in the trailer is the Jigglypuff with a marker and a sleeping man nearby. It's a long-going gag in the animated series that that particular Jigglypuff takes deep offense when people fall asleep to its singing, so it likes to draw what I presume are Pokemon dicks on their faces. Also, the Mr. Mime at the end was hilarious and creepy. In fact, some people have commented that the whole aesthetic choice of giving every Pokemon a furry look is creepy. I think it's cute, but I, I see where they're coming from. Detective Pikachu's trailer conveys the perfect tone, and I'd very much like to make it out to a theater May 10th to see it for myself. Looking forward to that. This week marks the 20th anniversary of The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. I must confess, this is one of the Zelda titles I haven't played much of, but there is no arguing that it is not a major, 
milestone in the ongoing legend of Zelda, and beloved by most Nintendo fans of a certain age. I'd love to go back and really give this historic game a serious try, as such a beloved title deserves, if only I had some fucking way to do it, Nintendo. Maybe even in a convenient handheld format. Whoa. But I'm an outrageous dreamer, I guess. Well, never mind. Congrats, anyway. Fallout 76 is getting bad reviews. Now, it's okay if you like it. I'm not trying to take that away from anyone, but I am opposed to the games as a service model, so honestly, I couldn't be happier. The AAA games industry is systemically trying to move away from making actual games, instead hoping to make a single service your entire hobby slash life, and milking you for all the microtransactions and slot machine loot boxes they can. Fallout 76 seems very empty, another online game where you are meant to make your own fun by playing with friends rather than finding anything particularly engaging in the world. I truly hope beyond hope Bethesda gets a good ass whipping in this and doesn't go down the road that Ubisoft, EA, Warner, and Activision have so enthusiastically embraced. You can complain about their outdated games engine all year long, but when Bethesda is focused on making story-driven single-player games like Skyrim, Wolfenstein 2, The New Colossus, and even Fallout 4, they are at their very best and one of the few AAA games developers that I still kind of respect. But uh, moving on, unlike Fallout 76, Pokemon Go is getting excellent reviews, holding a Metacritic score of 81 at the time of recording. Which is a shame, considering I probably still wouldn't like it. Well, actually, everything I've learned about the game makes me think I'd like it a lot. It's only the Go aspect I do believe I would get quite tired of. Part of the beauty of Pokemon was the strategy of catching Pokemon in battles by wearing them down through the RPG mechanics. The go-throwing mechanic is fun enough in short bursts, I'm willing to admit that. Fine for a mobile game, but for an entire RPG, I just can't see it. That's not to say, however, that modernizing Pokemon Yellow and making it less grindy was a bad idea. Certainly not. In fact, I think the biggest, best innovation they made in this game was allowing you to see the Pokemon. Simply doing away with random encounters alone is enough to make this game much easier and more accessible for new players and kids. I completely understand why they added the go catch mechanic, but it's just not for me. Still, I'd be very happy to give it a try, and perhaps even buy a copy of Let's Go Eevee, suck it Pikachu, if the price was right, but can't say I'd ever pay full price for such a game. Nah, my next major game is on pre-order and is decidedly more... Violent. But um... That's all the news I care to talk about right now. There were many other stories, but uh, we'll get to them next episode. So all that out of the way, now it's time for what I've been playing this week. Well, of course, I bought a couple games. One of them I instantly regretted. Uh, it's uh, a platformer with coffee. I don't even remember the name of it. It has auto runner aspects, and I, I kind of hate auto runners, uh, so it's not even worth talking about. But the other game I did buy was Grim Fandango. Buenos dias. Yeah. 
I've wanted to play this game for literally years. I read about it somewhere, probably IGN or uh, Giant Bomb or whatever, and ever since then I've wanted to play it. I like adventure games quite a bit. I'm not good at them, I'm not good at video games, period, but I, I enjoy a well-made adventure game. Uh, one thing I love about the game is the Day of the Dead motif. The story is quite fun. It's basically about um, this guy named Manny who uh, who is, he seems like the Grim Reaper at the very, very beginning, but it turns out that he's just one of many Grim Reapers and he just plays the part for uh, souls when they die. And uh, when you die, you can go to like heaven, but if you did really bad things, you stay in this place forever. Well, not, not forever, but you stay in this place for uh, as long as it takes for you to... Uh, <laughs> to work off your debt to whatever, you know, I don't know if there's God in this game or not, not really. Then you you can move on to the, like the heaven, right? Um, and so if you did bad things, you don't go to hell, you just have to work off your time in this like purgatory-like area. So Manny is kind of like a cross between the Grim Reaper and a like mid-level supervisor or like salesman, actually salesman's what it is. Um... <laughs> Anyway, it's a really good story in terms of just being wacky and weird and fun. I like the puzzles in the game. The puzzles are fun. They're, they're very esoteric, just like any adventure game at the time, and even to this day, sometimes adventure games being the way they are. Uh, they're a bit esoteric. They're hard to figure out necessarily, and I will freely admit that I have used a walkthrough here and there just a little bit. I don't want any major spoilers. I just, if I get stuck somewhere, I will look something up. I am not above admitting my <laughs> my badness. Let's see, where am I in the game? Well... Uh, I'm at what I assume is the middle of the game, running a casino in Rubicava, um, and I'm trying to find my way onto a ship to chase after the last woman I got to come into my office, who was had such a good soul that if I had gotten her into heaven, it would have helped pay off many of the years I have left to work off so that I can go to heaven. Uh, there's this wonderful beadnik cafe at the um, the bottom of this cliff, and uh, my casino's on top of the cliff, and uh, you got, like, you got some, uh, got some fucking comrades down there, man, talking about um, anarchism and stuff like that. But they're, like, the bourgeoisie, you know, like, socialists, like, champagne socialists. The real comrades in this particular area are the worker bees, the sea bees, who are out of work and talking about how they need to seize the means of something. They just can't quite figure it out. And uh, part of the plot in this area is that the local union is corrupt, I listened to the commentary a little bit, which, by the way, is an amazing, like, a really cool uh, feature of this game. I wish more games had this feature. This is the remastered version of Grim Fandango, and on it there is actually directors and composers and developers' commentary. So you can turn that on anytime. And I listened to the commentary, and uh, this whole area is based on uh, film noir. They went to lots of noir um, movies try to get a feel for it and it's really it's really great so anyway i'm trying to figure out a way to get on this ship to go after my last um client and I i'm not sure what i need to do i'll figure it out but i just wanted to uh mention it i know that my friend gambino on the twitters is a really big fan of grim fandango and adventure games in general and i'm sure he's happy that i've mentioned it so anyway it's a great game it's only 14.99 it is a classic in the adventure genre and well worth your time Moving on to Save Me, Mr. Taco. I took my own advice in episode 10, which is something I've done a couple times where I've had like a an insight that I didn't think of while I was playing the game, but I put it into the show. So I took my own advice 
And I farmed for money to max out my lives because I could buy lives in the local uh, city. And with that, I was finally able to defeat my warmongering brother and finally move on. What's interesting is the game changed. I knew this was going to happen because I read a little bit about the game. Instead of an octopus that shoots ink and things like that and wears uh, magical hats, I am now playing as a human girl. It's uh, it's not much different, really, though. The, the same issues are in there where, like, there are all kinds of enemies that come at you from the right side of the screen that you can't see. And the camera's zoomed in enough that you don't have much time to think about it, so you really have to memorize levels. One big difference, though, is her sword actually kills enemies. All the stuff so far that Mr. Taco has does not kill enemies, it just stuns them. So that's a kind of a big difference. So the game continues to be a decent platformer and a great homage to the classic Game Boy games. In fact, I forgot to mention, I think, last time that you can change how wide the screen is. So if you want to play in 16 by 9, you know, full screen, you can do that. But you can also play it in um, 4 by 3 and then have a, a Super Game Boy-like border around it. And there's several of those, including one that just looks like a Game Boy, like you're playing a Game Boy screen. Also... This game is in black and white by default, basically, but you can cycle through different color palettes, just like a Game Boy game in a Game Boy Color. I've found the mildly greenish gray and white to be the most um, appealing to my eyes in terms of just like uh, stopping eye strain, but they have everything from green to an extremely disorienting... Um, exposure uh, color or something that you can never play in, but it's fun to see. And you can do that anytime you're playing the game, and you can also change the border anytime while you're playing the game, if you've set that up in the settings of the game in the menu. Uh, the other thing I would like to mention is, uh, last week when I talked about the game, for whatever reason, uh, lately I've been playing games on the TV a lot more. And I played this game almost entirely on the TV, but Saving Mr. Taco is definitely made for a handheld system. And I find that it is easier to play, though not easy at all, just a light, just like a, a tiny bit easier to play in handheld mode. Maybe because you got the screen right next to your face, well, not right next to your face, but much closer to your face. And so you can kind of perhaps react faster to the oncoming hordes of enemies. I'm not sure, um, but it's, it's, it's meant to give you the feeling of a Game Boy game. So definitely try it in handheld mode if you want to give it a try. Anyway, that's Save Me, Mr. Taco. Now, moving on to the final game of this week. And oh my God, Breath of the Wild. I have no idea, none as to why it took me so long to get into this game. I guess part of it was I was turned off by the plateau area because I didn't know what to do at the time, and you have to get off the plateau area before you get full freedom to look around by solving certain um, puzzles. Not hard at all, really. The other thing is I knew from everything I had heard about Breath of the Wild that when I got into it, there would be very little time for anything else, and uh, that's definitely the case. I have put at least 30 hours into this game, Anyway, I finally got into it, and uh, honestly, it is the perfect synthesis of two of my favorite franchises, The Elder Scrolls and Zelda. I say The Elder Scrolls because I don't play a lot of open-world games. My favorite open-world games, the open-world games I want to play and have put lots of effort and time into, are The Elder Scrolls. So to me, the best game to compare this to is The Elder Scrolls. It is wonderful. You know, I kind of want Skyrim still for my Switch, but I could just play, 
I could just play Zelda Breath of the Wild forever, you know? And I, I don't even have the DLC, so that's something to look forward to. It certainly scratches my exploration itch. For example, the cooking is fun. When I remember to do it, that's one thing I have to remember more often to do. Finding the random shrines is fun. Finding the Korok seeds is fun. Finding the various, like, fairies that only I can see is fun. But fucking, I don't know how this is possible, but fucking climbing up a huge tower, to me, is fun. Because I know there's going to be something interesting at the top of it. And if nothing else, I will finally get a map for the area I'm in. Got many more of those towers to climb up yet. It's just, it's, it's, it, it's like stimulation overload for my brain it's so fucking awesome literally the only it's not really a problem it's just a matter of taste and again it's something that i've i'm kind of used to in elder scrolls games so it's not as bad for me as it is for some people is that the weapons break but i should kind of talk about where i am in the game right now I've captured the divine beast, Van Ruda, and um, I'm currently fighting Thunderblight Ganon for control of the divine beast, Va Naboris. Before I did that, though, the sneaky mission in the Yuga hideout I had to do to get the Thunderhelm, which I needed to get to the divine beast, was lots and lots of fun. It's really interesting to play as Solid Link, <laughs> to have some kind of like stealth element into the game. I could go on and on about the game, but I didn't want to go too long. I'm, there's going to be many, many more updates about this game, I feel, because I'm just going to keep playing it forever, probably. Now that I've played it, it is definitely up there with Super Mario Odyssey as one of the best games I've ever played, and one of the most beautiful games I've ever played, and I just, I don't know, just thank you, Nintendo. Thank you. And I, I don't know why it took me forever to get into it, but I finally am, and I fucking, fucking love it. So that's what I've been up to this week. Now it's time for a very special interview-ish thing. Before we go on, I would just like to say I was kind of nervous when I recorded this. I really don't know Bryn that well. I'm very happy to have her on, and she was great. I have Bryn from BP Lettuce here on Leftendo. The, Hi. Hey, hey there. The, uh, the genesis of this is I talked to them on the bird site. And I said to you all that you should do an episode on the Switch. And then you were like, what? You were like, why can't I come on your show? So, okay, here you are. Yeah, you're the video game guy. We do the weed and the communism. I mean, I do a little, like, light leftist stuff here and there as part of an evil plot to get gamers to think about things in a more left-wing, you know, way. But, yeah, yeah. mostly about games. Yeah. But uh, you said you had lots of thoughts about the Nintendo Switch. Well, I'm going to ask you some questions. Great. Yes. All right. Number one, are you um, new, newish to Nintendo? Because I know there are a lot of people who got into the Nintendo Switch who hadn't been into Nintendo for many generations. Um, I borrowed my uh, – the first console I ever had in my house was an NES. Um, it was um, – my cousins and I borrowed it from them for as long as I could keep it. And I remember playing a lot of the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles one that's like top down overworld and then side scrolling. <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. It's a terrible game, but I played the shit out of it. So did we. <laughs> um, and then I never had a Super Nintendo. Oh. But I think I had every console they released after that. So I guess 64, GameCube. Wii and Wii U. 
I, so I've had all of them. It's funny because I remember at, when I, as a kid, I used to be like, I was, I was into Genesis and Sega Saturn, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then after the Saturn, I kind of felt really burned. And then I was like, I mostly had a PlayStation and PlayStation products after that. But I mm -hmm. Nintendo is always a constant. So I've always mm -hmm. been a Nintendo gal. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, that's not similar, uh, dissimilar to me because uh, when I was really young, my first console was the Sega Genesis, actually. And then yeah, that's the first one that I got. That was mine. Yeah, I was five years old, and I got it for Christmas, and it was amazing. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And then I, I got into like Sega stuff, but then my my brothers would have the Nintendo stuff, and I would play with them constantly. But they wouldn't be into Sega. But I went all the way up to. I, I don't know about the Saturn. I think I skipped the Saturn. I got the Dreamcast. Good job. You did the you made you made the right move. Yeah. <laughs> but we had a Super Nintendo and I fucking loved the Super Nintendo. And my first handheld was a Game Boy. And I always I've always been a big fan of Nintendo's handhelds. I've always been a fan of handhelds in general. I had the PSP and all that. But so Nintendo to me has always been really about handhelds. So uh, when they announced the Switch, I was like, oh my fucking God, this is perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me. As I got older, uh, sitting down on a couch and and playing a console, even compute like when I, a few years ago, gosh, maybe eight years ago now, I I built a tower and I was playing a lot of Steam games and 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 stuff like that. But as I got older and you know had a, had jobs and responsibilities and things, it just became harder and also I live in New York City. Um, it just became harder and harder to play, sit down and play consoles and devote that much time to it. So the DS was a really cool thing to have, and that was where I was playing most of my games. But um, the the Vita came out. I really wanted that, but it all of those handhelds that started to sort of like embrace that people wanted to be able to play consoles on the go on the go just always really fell short on games. Mm -hmm. um, and so when the Switch was announced, I was like, if this is everything they say it is, I will buy it on the day it comes out. <laughs> um, because it looks incredible. Mm -hmm. um, did I you? Did, uh, no, I I, wa I waited to see if it was what it said it was. <laughs> um, but I think I got it like the week or two after it came out. Wow, I waited a whole year to get it. I was like fucking. Um, I think it was unemployed at the time it came out. So oh, I was like, okay. understandable, understandable. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh man, look at all these fucking amazing games. I have to get a fucking job. Well, one thing that was insane about the Switch is that I bought it with uh, Breath of the Wild, and I've always been a, a big hater on um, 3D Zelda games. Me too. Um, I've never, I hated the Ocarina of Time when it came out. <laughs> I didn't like, and I was a teenager then, you know, I was like at prime, like I was primed to be nostalgic for it, but I really didn't like it. The Twilight Princess I liked. Um, but everything else I didn't like. So I got that and I was like, this is pretty good. But the one thing that about the Switch that Nintendo has been doing that's so incredible is just like diving full force into indie games. Yeah. So I've just been buying random indie games and just like plowing through them. Um, and so many of them are astounding games like Celeste, Hollow Knight, Owlboy, mm -hmm. uh, Undertale. It's just like the perfect console to play so many of these little um, little storytelling art pieces. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you've listened to my show. I, I think you might have heard me talk about how I think um, uh, Nintendo's always needed since like the Wii. They've needed really like 
quality third-party titles, and I think they finally have that with the indies on the Wii on the uh, Switch. Yeah, and they didn't have that with the Wii and the Wii U a little bit, you know, but not to this extent. I don't even really remember that. I mean, I have a Wii U, and I didn't play it that much. <laughs> um, it was a a bad choice. It was one of the biggest biggest mistakes Nintendo's made in a long time. I think it's just not quite. It, it wants to be the Switch, and it just completely fails at being it. I don't really remember a lot of indie games on there, if there were any. I'm sure there is, but I yeah. I, I didn't play them. There there was. Like, I had, like, Garbage Bear or something or other, and I had, um, uh, I don't fucking know. It was, like, a <laughs> Sonic clone, like, Treasure Planet or something. It was, it was really good, but... Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, like, for the most part, Nintendo didn't embrace indies the way they do now. We had the Nindy Direct and all that, and... Uh, one thing I bring up sometimes is that there are certain kinds of Nintendo fanboys on the internet and games media who want to have big AAA games from the likes of like, well, Ubisoft is on there, but like EA and Activision and stuff. And I keep saying over and over again that we don't fucking need them with all these amazing indies coming out. There's so many indies coming out every fucking week. Yeah. And they're all pretty great. I, I keep taking chances and being like, this is going to be a waste of $10 and it's never, it's never a waste. It's always a really great experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that there are, there is junk on there. I'm not going to lie. Okay. But <laughs> it's, it's nowhere to like steam's level of junk. And in fact, the uh, eShop is basically the new steam, at least in terms of from the perspective of indie devs, because it's saving certain indie devs from going bankruptcy. Oh really? I haven't read about that. Yeah, I've mentioned it on the show before. Like the uh, the developer of Blossom Tales, I think they're called IDA or something like that. They were going to go out of business, and then they uh, released it on the Switch and sold twenty times as much on the Switch, and they uh, were saved. Oh, I think I do remember you saying that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this has happened many, many times. Uh, like Elwa's Awakening sold three times as much on the Switch in the first mm -hmm. week than it sold on Steam in the first month. That sort of thing. So, like, it's the indie machine, and it's obvious that these indie games are much more fun to play in handheld anyway. Yeah, I think that's fair. But I'm always shocked that big AAA type games don't really suffer, as far as I'm concerned. Um, mm -hmm. Dark Souls is fun as shit to play on the Switch. Um, I personally don't find any real difference or any like measurable difference. But I'm all, to be fair, I'm also not the kind of person that like needs to run 60 frames per second on, at 4K or anything. Like I just really don't care. I can't tell the difference. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I mean, I'm not saying that if you're listening to this. Uh, you can't. I just don't care. But like Diablo three is a blast to just grind on the train, you know, while you're riding the train. And I don't think anything really suffers. You don't. I don't think you. I don't think the Switch needs sort of hardcore AAA games or whatever that even means anymore. Yeah. Um, but I, I think they'll only expand their user base by adding them. Well, I'm not against them necessarily. The thing that I'm worried about, right, is like when you get like Activision, uh, you know, quote unquote Activision, quote unquote Blizzard. Blizzard barely exists anymore. So like they come out with uh, fucking um, Diablo Immortals. They just announced the other. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, mo the mobile one or whatever. The mobile game. And all it is is it's Activision. You know, Activision bought Blizzard, right? right. So they're going to, that game is rife for, uh, you know, adding microtransactions and loot boxes and shit. And that's what I worry about for the Switch is like if you get these big AAA games that it's going to just become a loot boxy mess, you know. So I'm not against it per se. I just wish people would stop worrying so much about being able to play their latest, you know, 
uh, loot box FPS on the Switch and just enjoy the indies because the indies are fucking art. Right. Well, you know, different strokes. People want to do things that are something I would never care about. <laughs> um, yeah. I can't imagine why you would want to play like Battlefield or Call of Duty ever. And I can't imagine why you'd want to play it on the Switch, but you know, hey, more power to you, I guess. But like, I don't know. I think those games are like the whole like loot box DLC system is fine for the most part. Like, I think there are some egregious examples where people deliver half of a game and then gouge you um, for to to just charge more than sixty dollars. Um, those games suck, and I never really run into it anyway. <laughs> I mean, well, you and me don't, right? But the people who right. buy Call of Duty every year, and that's like all they play, right. those games are becoming more and more just like devoid of anything except microtransactions and multiplayer online. I mean, there's not even a single-player campaign in the latest edition of Call of Duty. So to me, yes, what? you and me, we would never play that crap. We don't care. But <laughs> we're not most people. I mean, millions of people buy that that crap. Yeah, not to hate on it. I mean, like... You know, I just the slow crawl of capitalism into video games is is expected, right? Like you're True. going you're going to see the things that you love uh, just more and more ravaged by people trying to extract money from you. Um, and it's funny because there was that whole thing with um, Red Dead Redemption Two, where you know everyone was getting mad about how the game was performing or whatever. And like employees had to work hundred hour weeks and stuff. And it's like, how are you, how are you a gamer and not looking at this and realizing that there's a problem <laughs> with this, the system of production and, and not just the end product of your game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Well, people, a lot of people don't think systemically. They don't, they don't think about any of this, honestly, that's just why I trying to get a little bit of that into my, my show, you know, just kind of, yeah. Inject a little bit of thought of like, no one ever thinks about where something comes from anymore, you know? And they don't think about how, well, I go to work every day. I work really hard. My boss sucks. I hate my life. Well, maybe the people that make my favorite video game also hate their life and work right. 80 hours a week or some shit, you know? Yeah, it's quite strange. And I think, I think video games being such a young medium has been weirdly insulated from certain things that have destroyed other mediums. Like... Uh, Extra Credits did a video recently about why games have stayed $60 for decades, which is, it's a totally, it's a price fixing thing that doesn't actually make sense in like free market capitalism, quote unquote, because the amount of money they put into production and, and development, Call of Duty should be a $200 game. Like if they really were going to make money on the sale of the game. Mm -hmm. um, and then so... So complaining about the DLC is like complaining about the way that they've kind of gamed the system because otherwise you'd be, they'd charge you $200, but they know as probably because of like the historical context, movies going up to $20 a ticket has, has made people stop going to the theater because people are poor and aren't going to pay that much money for a single theater experience or a single game. So they know they have to keep it that much because there's, they'll they'll sell less, right? So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. though I, there is an argument, and you, you'll find this argument like um, Jim Sterling, who's a favorite of mine on YouTube. You know, mm -hmm. um, that if you're going to have a freemium economy in your game, your game shouldn't cost anything. 
because you're going to make so much money on microtransactions and fucking loot boxes anyway. And you know, if you look at the industry, you're right, it's insulated from other like entertainment industries. Like um, Red Dead Redemption 2 just came out, right? That is the uh, like the biggest selling entertainment product of all time. It's the first day record for like the, the most sales of entertainment product of all time. I'm, you know, and I could I could be a little bit messed up there, but if you guys Google that, you'll find that it is like one of the most profitable businesses in the world that uh, gaming is. You know, it's more profitable than fucking oh, yeah. movies. Yeah, it's billions of dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my, my point, though, is like, uh, yes, you could make these games $200, and it, it does make sense and to a degree, but then would you have the microtransactions in there? Because I'll tell you what, if, if they took out the microtransactions and they just made a really solid first-person game that lasted, say, 60 hours, maybe I'd be willing to pay $200 for it. <laughs> You were talking about how the late stage capitalism is making it uh, like impossible for us to afford anything. Well, I think I think I think this is an example of capitalism eating itself, mm -hmm. uh, where the the game companies are trying to continue to make bigger and better and more interesting products, but they're they see the writing on the wall and are unable to like actually do what I think capitalism suggests should happen is charge more money for something that costs more money. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they're doing these scrambling around tactics of like micro transactions and loot boxes to, to extract the same amount of money from people over a longer period of time or, or disperse through, through a bigger population. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think people are rightfully angry that are, and rightfully dislike it, but I don't think they understand why, <laughs> okay. why, why it's happening and why they dislike it. You know, like mm -hmm. they want this. I think gamers are often sort of just like rooted in nostalgia or like what they think is normal. And they want to buy a game that is a complete piece of art that they can sit down and experience and that's it. And I think that the market has disallowed people from being able to deliver that content. Um, and instead of getting mad at Activision or, or Blizzard or, or EA as this sort of entity that isn't do, doing stuff the way you like, you have to realize that like the whole system of selling you art as a commodity is the problem, you know? Well, I agree with you though. I would say that there is a market and we were just talking about it earlier where you can buy a completed product and it's the indie market. Yeah. Know? You know, but eventually that will be subsumed as well, unfortunately. Well, it was. It was being subsumed. Well, subsumed, maybe not the right word, but it was being destroyed by oversaturation in the Steam market. Uh, the Switch, the eShop, as we were talking about earlier, has given that new life, the indie devs. Yeah, we'll see how long it lasts, though. Right now, it's a, it's a yeah. great market. Yeah, but you're right, though. It's it's all systemic. It's all fucking capitalism. It, it all <laughs> sucks. Yeah, it does. However, technologically, I think the switch is a beautiful synthesis of things. You know, it to me, it, like it's the negation of the negation of the console wars. You know, <laughs> it becomes this this object that is able to sort of fulfill both needs in like the best way possible. Yeah, yeah, it's a hell of a lot better than the Wii U. I'll tell you that. And even though I'm I'm a Nintendo person by nature. I didn't like the Wii U and I didn't like the Wii, even though I liked lots of games on those systems. So if if PlayStation had 
brought out something like if they had made a Vita that actually was good, like with a lot of good games on it, I might have switched over. But finally, Nintendo figured something out. Yeah. I mean, I didn't like the Wii U, but I did like the Wii. I mean, I, I think as a console, it um, had a lot of really fun games. I played it a lot. Yeah, I didn't really have much of a problem with the Wii. What did you not like about it? Well, I mean, it had plenty of good games, right? I've always loved, it doesn't matter about the console. I've always loved Nintendo's first party titles. Nintendo knows how to make a quality video game. But yeah. I don't like motion controls being the primary means of controlling games. You know, it's all right to have it as an augmented thing, you know, like, oh, you could use motion controls. Like, I'm, I'm going through Breath of the Wild finally, finally. Mm -hmm. And I like using it to aim a little bit, a little bit, just to help with the aiming. But I don't yeah. like having to use it just to aim, like I cannot use my stick, you know? Right, I liked I liked Twilight Princess mostly because of the motion controls. I think, like for me, that really fixed all of the problems I had with Majora's Mask and, and Ocarina of Time, where mm -hmm. you could, you know, like I would just like sit on the couch and just like sort of, you just like wiggle your hand a little bit, you know? Like you didn't have to really hack at something, like it was a real sword. It was mm -hmm. just sort of a different kind of gesture. Um, mm -hmm. But then with, the arrows and the slingshot, you know, it was like much simpler to hit what you're trying to hit. And I thought the puzzles were designed better. Uh, I don't know. I like the game. I love Twilight Princess. It's amazing. Uh, weird thing about that, weird factoid about me is I had the now quite rare version of Twilight Princess that came out on the GameCube. I didn't have the Wii version. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And I it forgot was, that happened. Yeah, I, I, I should forget because it was stolen from me and I never saw it again. Oh, no. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, you need to go somewhere in a little while, so we should wrap this up. Could you tell me maybe what your favorite first-party title so far on the Switch is, and then we'll talk about indies. Okay, favorite first-party title. Honestly, I got to go with um, – I think I have to go with Odyssey right now. I thought Odyssey was the best Super Mario title since the original new Super Mario Brothers. Cause I'm I'm a much more of a side scrolling type person. Me I too. I loved New Super Mario Brothers one and two. I can't wait till they re-release it. because uh, I actually never played um, Super Mario Brothers Luigi. Yeah, me neither. Again, hated uh, Super Mario 64 when it came out. Um, and I felt like Galaxy was good. Mm -hmm. They did a pretty cool job. There was lots of fun with that, but it it never really captured the type of twitchy uh puzzle solving that i like yeah from a mario game um that like new super mario brothers did felt like odyssey really got to the heart of what made the side scrolling marios really great like mechanically and then expanded that world out to be incredibly bizarre and really fun and always surprising and also all the throwbacks were fun and nostalgic and i don't know i thought it was a really nice thing they did yeah, yeah. I, I've said a couple times on the show that I think it's the best game ever made. <laughs> but <laughs> Oh, yeah, you have said that. Yeah. <laughs> I disagree with. <laughs> oh, what's your favorite game then? Oh, my favorite game of all time? I don't all know. All time. I have, like, I have like a somewhat shifty type, type top five mm -hmm. um, that generally includes Metal Gear Solid and Shadow of the Colossus and um, this game for the computer from the 90s called The Neverhood, and maybe Borderlands 2 sometimes. That's not a bad list. Yeah. Sometimes there's Nintendo games, depending on my mood. Probably my... Oh, oh, I'm sorry. No, my, my number one is what I usually say, and I totally slipped my mind, is Super Metroid. Yeah, Super Metroid's fucking awesome. That's, that's probably my favorite game of all time. It's usually my number one. 
to me, like none of the primes have ever come close. Samus Returns was a godsend, though. That game fucking ruled. So uh, what are the, some of the, uh, the indies you like on the uh, system? Uh, like I was saying earlier, uh, Celeste is, I think Celeste is like a weird, it's like they knew all of the fetishes that people had for things like um, Super Mario and um, other side-scrolling platformers, um, and then just like completely created this machine to just be crack. That game is incredible. Uh, Hollow Knight is basically like what I would want out of a Super Metroid 2 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that game is beautifully themed. Combat is incredible. It's on my short list for game of the year right now. Yeah, those two are on my game of the year short list as well. Let's see. Uh, I hadn't played Undertale until I got a Switch, and that was cute. I'm definitely not. I didn't think it was as amazing as everyone else did. I thought it was cute. It's fun. I haven't tried it yet. Yeah, don't get your hopes up in terms of gameplay or story. Like, it's fine. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's a cute little thing. I think I don't know why that game became such a monolithic meme, but it's it's fine. To close out, I have one question I thought of that might be kind of interesting to talk about for just a couple minutes. There was a discourse within left Twitter and I assume outer Twitter circle or outer left circles, god damn it. Um, <laughs> that being a gamer is inherently like reactionary, even though like half the time those people play games. Yeah. And what what do you think about that? So we talk about that a little bit on our on, on one of our, one of the latest episodes. Um, but I have feelings. For me, I think the legacy of the concept of a gamer as an identity is yeah. intrinsic to nerd culture, which I think identifying with nerd culture now can be inherently toxic. <laughs> um, because I think being a person that enjoys games as, as an art form and, and ingests them or makes them is just being an artist or an art appreciator. I don't think that there's anything, there's, there's really no argument against that as far as I'm concerned. Like it's just a medium. And I don't think there's anything inherently different about playing soccer or a sport or you, you can get deep into like the metaphysics of what the action of playing a game is, but like, I don't really care. It's fine to play games. It's fine to make games. Mm -hmm. I think there was a point before like the seventies where like nerds and queers were the same people and like the type of people who were shy or had certain kind of kind of kind of personality traits or liked certain things were shunned by like the dominant monoculture um and sort of grouped together and then there was a certain point you could be anonymous on the internet mm -hmm. and these little sub factions started gaining ground and like the concept of being a nerd became less so about who you were in real life and more about what you liked, but the anger didn't go away. So now you had groups of people organizing around the things that they liked, but also around their anger. And that kind of became gamers. And so gamers is sort of a label that people put on themselves for being shunned in society and they're angry about it. And it generally I think there's a large faction of them are just reactionaries, right? Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, we don't have a term like cinephile or um, bibliophile or something like that for, for someone who really enjoys games, which I think would be nice because I play video games almost every day. <laughs> but like, it's unfortunate 
that the people who have an axe to grind with society because they have nowhere else to go and and our culture doesn't give these people an outlet or you know class consciousness uh (laughs) they've kind of created this this faction around themselves that is pretty toxic but i think that's basically coincidental like it could have been anything right like we could right now be talking about comic guys you know comic book guys or whatever star wars guys whatever group became like the the sort of dominating force around nerdy white guys who are angry that they didn't get their sort of patriarchal promise i think gaming has led to that other than being a place you can like talk online you know because of xbox live or discord or whatever so i think it's just coincidental and i and i don't think it's fair to say anyone who identifies as a gamer is necessarily that kind of person it's just they've sort of controlled the narrative so i I think it's a good project to sort of inject discourse around people who play games with actual class consciousness and the material effects of capitalism and why their lives are the way they are and why gaming is the way it is yeah, well, I do what I can, but I, I totally agree with you on uh, all of that. I, I think a lot of it has to do with the uh, corporatization of nerd culture, where like everything is now related to some kind of nerd product that was always corporatized, of course, but not nearly as pervasive, you know. Mm-hmm. And our our overall culture is is uh, patriarchal and fucking imperialist and evil. So of course, everything becomes more patriarchal and imperialist and evil. Yeah. And I think, I I mean, I'm always suspect of any identity that revolves around a consumer choice. Yeah. I'm I'm usually more than suspect. I mean, I generally think that that's dumb. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But it's unfortunate to me because I do think that there is a lot of potential in creating games that speak to people and create ideas in people's minds that are important, just like any other art form. And I think any revolutionary movement understands that art is really important. Not to get too off the track here, but like the Soviets understood very much that capturing cinema was incredibly important and that they had to make movies because it's a, every all art can be propaganda. Every, all art is propaganda for some idea, right? And so unfortunately, capitalists have a stranglehold on gaming. It's very hard to find any game that has any other idea than the status quo, patriarchal, capitalist ideals of things. And I think that, you know, if there are game designers out there, like really think about what you're saying with your games. Absolutely. Totally agree with you. And then there are little bits here and there, you know, like Dead Cells being made by syndicalists and, you know. Also an incredible game, Dead Cells. Absolutely. Indies is where it's at right now. Indies is the hope for the future. This is an indie, this is indie Tendo. Indie Tendo. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, Thank you so much for coming on, Left Hendo, Bryn. Thank you so much for having me. And where can we find more of you? Oh, you can listen to me every week, generally on Wednesdays, if not earlier, on uh, BB Bledis, which is my podcast, which is available on all um, iTunes and all whatever podcast app you use. And it's a great show, and I'm so thankful for you coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, man. Bye. Bye. Ah, that was great. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show, Bren. Just a wonderful person. And uh, I love Beep Beep Lettuce. Uh, Please go check it out. It is a wonderful show. You can just search Beep Beep Lettuce in Apple Podcasts, just like you can search Leftendo, and uh, give it a try. I would say it's like Chapo, but I mean that in the very best way possible. 
Anyway, we'll be right back after this. Did you see the latest Nintendo newsletter? Whoa, nice graphics. I'd like to get my hands on that game. You mean you haven't played it yet? We can play it on my Nintendo Entertainment System. It's the Legend of Zelda, and it's really rad. Those creatures from Ganon are pretty bad. Octoroks, Tech Tikes, Levers, too. But with your help, our hero pulls through. Yeah, go Link, yeah, get some. Awesome. Intense. The Nintendo Entertainment System. Your parents help you hook it up. The Legend of Zelda sold separately. Well, that's the show, Sea Monkeys. Uh, I'd like to say sorry for getting this out so late. Uh, the plague has been going around in Sea Lab, and that hasn't helped. Plus, I've had to take care of some of the kids in Sea Lab, and that hasn't helped either. But I like making Leftendo, and will continue to. And if it hasn't come out in a little while, rest assured it is coming out very, very soon. Anyway, before you go, if you like my audio gibberish, please consider supporting it at patreon.com forward slash leftendo. There for just 3 50 you can get access to an upcoming sister podcast called Left Tunes, where me and my comrades will be discussing our favorite cartoons, and sooner or later, our first episode will be about Samurai Jack. I have been talking to Cheetah Squad, he is working on the episode, he is putting his heart and soul into it, so I look forward to that. I'd like to give a massive shout out and thank you to Issa, my latest patron. You're the best, and I am very humbled. May you utterly destroy Calamity Ganon and save her. Save Princess Zelda. Don't forget, if you become a patron, you will get a shout-out on the show, and my deepest thanks. That's patreon.com forward slash leftendo. Thanks again, Issa. If you're new to Leftendo and would like to subscribe, just search Leftendo in Apple Podcasts. And hey, while you're there, leave a review, but be gentle or else lube me up first. You can find me at Anarcho Murphy and the show at Leftendo, where you can follow updates on games I'm currently playing, including screenshots and short videos, plus my own beautiful brand of cynical leftist humor. Anyway, Sea Monkeys, thank you so much for listening. Waluigi forever. Peace out. Link, here come to town.